Okay, John 20. Uh, and I'm going to back up. We, we actually finished John 20 last time. But there was one verse that I glided over that I've been wrestling with this week. Maybe that's why I glided over it. And that's verse 22 of chapter 20. When he had said this, as he said to the disciples, peace be with you. This is his first resurrection, post-resurrection appearance to the disciples as a group. So when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What do you do with that? In a certain certain denomination, that's a la carte uh, permission for the church to be the one to forgive sins. Or not. Is that what Jesus means? I think um, some versions have remit for this instead of forgive. And it sounds even more ecclesiological. (laughs) Um, Like the church really does have this ability to forgive sins. So let's make this a little more complicated and go to John 10. And I'm going to point out something about John 10. And I have to admit that I'm getting this from someone. And that is last Sabbath I listened to the Sabbath sermon in the Loma Linda University Church by Randy Roberts. And he preached on John 10. On Jesus is the gate. And he pointed out that this, this chapter piggybacks and is tied to chapter 9. And it's so tied to it, and this is something I just noticed now. If you look at chapter 10, verse 1, it doesn't say, and Jesus said, and Jesus went on to say, or something of that nature. It simply has Jesus talking, and he's he's simply continuing the conversation that he started in chapter 9. Jesus was talking about blindness. And he said, I came in in chapter 9, verse 39, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see and those who who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. And then he goes right on. Verily, truly, very truly, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in another way is a thief and a bandit. And he begins this discourse on the Good Shepherd. What happens in 9? Jesus heals a man born blind. And, and the great dispute among the rabbis in Jesus' day was whether or not the man sinned or his parents sinned. It was actually believed by some of the rabbis that he could sin in the womb. So this was the debate. Jesus said, look, it's not either one. 
It's that the Son of Man might be glorified. Or that God might be glorified. So, and then he heals the man. And they, because Jesus does this on the Sabbath day, they drag him in before the Sanhedrin. Or at least before the chief priests and Pharisees. And they interrogate him. And the man holds his own throughout the entire interrogation. And finally, he says in verse 33, If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and you are trying to teach us. And they drove him out. So they kick him out of the synagogue. And that, by the way, has become the rule. It's the new policy of the church that if you acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, you are to be thrown out. So all of this is the background for Jesus talking about the Good Shepherd. And the question that Jesus is trying to answer, according to Randy Roberts, is who has the right to close and open the gate? And that was his whole sermon, basically, was on who, who gets to open and close the gate. Because Jesus says in verse 7 of John 10, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. And he, he uh, quoted a New Testament scholar who pointed out that that's very true that when the shepherd would let the sheep in at night, he would open the gate and he would stand in the door as the gate itself, determining who can come in. So what Pastor Roberts concluded was Jesus is the one who determines who is in and who's out. So if Jesus is the one who determines that, and not us. We're not the gate. And we're not the gatekeeper. Then what do we do with chapter 20, verse 23? If you, he's talking to his disciples, who are the beginning of the new Christian church, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Hard to know who translated this, or I wrote this commentary, I should say. I'm going to see what is said. I believe the person who wrote this is a Roman Catholic. And in Roman Catholic tradition, this would be the church. Forgive sins. But he doesn't agree with that as the ultimate way of interpreting this passage which I find interesting. Uh, he, he acknowledges that John elsewhere ascribes forgiveness of sins directly to God. So what is Jesus saying here? I looked up the, the because of the word used, remit, in other translations, I looked up the word in the Greek, and it is to forgive. If Amy, uh, in the Greek. What is interesting is the word to retain. I could not find that it meant retain. And I'm not going to take the time to, to show you that evidence. 
It, it seems to be a word that means to manage, to, to overthrow, to overcome, to uh, conquer. And you know, it's our tendency, it's our Greek heritage to assume that when you have two lines in, the, in, the, in any part of the Bible, they must mean opposites, especially in the New Testament. I'm wondering if that is really true here. Because this is translated as though it's opposite. If you forgive sins, they're forgiven. If you retain them, they're retained. Opposite meanings from each other. Is that is it possible that they're parallels? If you forgive sins, they're forgiven. And if you conquer sin, you have conquered it. That is, if you if you if you if you allow it to be conquered, and you acknowledge that it's been conquered then it has been conquered. I may be stretching this, but as I looked at the different definitions, I had a hard time finding retain uh, in that word. And maybe I need to relook at that. But even if it does mean that, Jesus has just breathed on them the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that is supposed to lead them. Right? So this isn't something they are doing of themselves. They're doing it under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now the question becomes, how do we know that the church really have the Holy Spirit when they decide something? I would suggest this, that God has entrusted us to guide people to the gate, that is, people to Jesus. If we help them get to the gate and we say we forgive you, Jesus is there. He's going to let them in. But we're not the gate. There's a fine distinction between leading them to the gate and being the gate. And I would say we are not the gate. And if we ever take on ourselves the, deci- deci- the decision that some people are saved and some people are, lo- are lost, we have now become the gate. And we do not have the Holy Spirit. So I'm 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 uh, looking at this in light of John 10, specifically and John 9, and suggesting that this is very very crucial because the early reformers were extremely opposed to the fact to the idea that the church had the power to determine who was saved and lost, and that they had the power to forgive sins in that way. What I think Jesus is describing is under the Holy Spirit's leadership, you will lead many, many people to forgiveness. And if you can't lead them to forgiveness, then they can't be led to forgiveness. And if you can lead them to forgiveness, then they are forgiven. And then perhaps in here is a warning that we have a lot of power in our hands 
to keep people from the gate by the way we treat them, by the way we represent Jesus. And to, use, to be sure that we're under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that we're being used by Him and not taking control over Him. This is extremely crucial, given that in a few months there's the possibility that the church will decide that a certain group of people are not allowed in the gate. They are shut out, thrown out of the gate. So I think it's important that we understand this and not misinterpret it. And that's why I wanted to go back through that before we go on to chapter 21. So now we're ready to go on to chapter 21. And um, John, would you read verses 1 to 3? From 21? Mm -hmm. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. What's happening here? This is the post-resurrection, and it's been uh, quite a few days since Jesus manifested himself to the disciples, and he's gone. And Peter falls into doubt. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to, according to the other Gospels, they're supposed to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. But they're kind of milling around. They're not sure their leader is gone. It reminds me of what happens when a lead goose uh, dies or uh, has to drop out of his lead role for various reasons. Typically, the, the group of the flock of geese mill in a circle. And they just mill and mill until finally what happens is that another lead goose Mm -hmm. who probably was rejected by his original flock and had to kind of navigate on his own comes along and has joined them and is milling with them. And suddenly the light dawns on his little bird brain. (laughs) I know what to do. Why am I milling with these other geese? And he takes off, honking, and they all come into formation and go behind him. This is kind of the situation you have with the disciples. Jesus, yes, he's risen. He's appeared to them. They have that joyous good news, but he's not with them anymore. And what to do? They feel like they're sheep without a shepherd. So Peter says, well, you know, this isn't paying the bills. So, let's go fishing. And so the other, others with him said, we'll go with you. And they, they spent all night fishing and caught nothing. This is a very real scenario for me. When I lived in Hong Kong, it was customary for those who liked to fish to go out on the South China Sea at night. And about 2 o'clock in the morning, they would have their catch. 
because you don't go fishing in the daytime. And then they would come home, they would <clears throat> roast some of it over the fire and eat it at about 2 or 3 in the morning, and then they would go to bed and sleep into the way into the day, uh, having caught their fish. And the same thing with the Middle East. <clears throat> you don't go fishing in the daytime. You only go fishing at night. But, you know, some nights you just don't catch anything. And, and that's unusual, I think. I think the fact they don't catch anything should have reminded Peter of something. What happened earlier that had to do with this in Peter's life? Do you remember? It's when they first met Jesus, right? right. Yeah. When, when they, had, they had met Jesus and they had followed him a little bit and he was teaching one day in a boat on the shores of Galilee. And that reason he was in the boat is because the crowds were so dense that he couldn't, he couldn't teach alongside the shore. He would have to stand in the water. So he got in the boat and pushed out and was able to be heard. So he's teaching away in the middle of the day. Probably starts in the early morning and, and goes around noon. And then he quits. He stops healing the people and everything. Sends them away. And he turns to Peter. He says, have you caught anything? And Peter says, no, I've, I labored all night and didn't catch a thing. He says, go out into the deep and put your net down on the right side of the boat. And Peter's like, you obviously don't know anything about fishing. You don't catch anything in the middle of the day, and, and you don't put your net down on the right side of the boat. But nonetheless, because you said so, I will do it. So he goes out there, he puts the net down, and boom, catches this huge amount of fish. Has to haul it in. And then he falls at Jesus' feet. He says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And hangs on to him for dear life. <laughs> And Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I, uh, before I went to Hong Kong, I begged my friends at Loma Linda to please let me know and help me understand about bringing people into a church that would abuse them and their picture of God. <clears throat> I didn't know what to do about that. I didn't feel that bringing in baby lambs into the church only to be abused and beaten, as it were. I'm using metaphors here. was a safe thing to do. And the church there at that time was very, very traditional as a result of missionaries who were very, very legalistic. <clears throat> and um, I remember my first convert <laughs> there. I uh, went to church without a tie and got duly berated <laughs> for not wearing a tie. Well, it says, who? Chinese don't wear ties. <laughs> you know, if they wear their, their, the kind of garb they usually wear, they, don't, they have more of a clerical collar uh, than a tie. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, he was pretty upset about what happened to him. So I get, that's just a small smidgen of 
of what they faced. And I just really wondered what to do. And I was still struggling with that first convert. I tried to keep him out of the baptismal tank. I, I kept trying to push him back. Wait, you know, you need to study more. No, wait, wait. And he finally went to the pastor. Mm. <laughs> he knew I couldn't baptize him anyway. So he went to the pastor and asked him to be baptized. And I had no choice <laughs> at that point but to surrender. <clears throat> so I was struggling with this, and I read, I was, I was translating Luke, and I came to that story of Peter's first encounter with Jesus and the fish. And suddenly it was like my eyes were open to see something I'd never seen before. That story wasn't just a story about a miracle, about proving that Jesus is the Messiah. That story was a parable of Peter's future. Um, when Jesus said, follow me and you will be fishers of people, he was saying, Peter, when I send you out into the deep, it'll be daytime instead of nighttime. It'll be in the heat of the day when the fish are in hiding. And persecution will be at its hottest. And I want you to still fish in that terrible time of persecution when the gatekeepers are trying to keep people out. And if you do, they will come. Those fish will come into your net. And then you think of Pentecost. You know, days before Pentecost, the disciples had been in hiding, freaking out that they were going to be next to be crucified. And then Pentecost comes, and 3,000 people come into the net. So as I read that, I said, okay, God, this is your business. <clears throat> I'm just going to go fishing and let you take care of the consequences. So here we are again. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he's been resurrected. He's already gone to heaven and come back. He's soon going to be ascending to heaven. And Peter goes fishing, and what happens next? Let's, um... <clears throat> uh, Kirsten, do you want to read... I'm sorry, Kristen. Do you want to read uh, 4 to 8? Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends! Haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. So the same thing happens. That should have been a deja vu time for Peter. To reinforce, Peter, this is not your job. Fishing is over. You're to catch people. 
And yes, I know it's the wrong time of day or night. I know it's, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be suffering for this. But it's still the time I want you to fish. Okay, and, and uh, Jesus has already made them breakfast with fish. My students all want to know if that means that we can eat fish. I say, well, there was no mercury in the fish in Jesus' day. <laughs> and I don't think it was nearly as diseased. All right, Paul, would you read uh, 11 to 14, please? Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is, this is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So the, the first time is he appears to Mary in the garden with the, with the tombs. The second time he appears to the disciples as a group, and including Thomas. And now this is the third time. I'll read 15 to 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Verily, truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, Follow me. I'm going to start with the last. Follow me, as in follow me to the same death that I died. Because that's how Peter was executed. He was executed by crucifixion. But what is this going on? Why does Jesus say to him, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? The traditional answer is that Peter denied Jesus before John. John followed Jesus all the way to crucifixion. Peter denied Jesus before John three times. So Jesus gives him this opportunity to reinstate him with the disciples, regain re, re, uh, his credibility. But there's something else that's going on. In the first two, do you love me's, he uses the word agapo. Ag ag agapao is what it is in Greek. He uses that word 
which is, is a high-principled kind of love. It's a love that you would use uh, to describe your love for God or your love for Jesus. <clears throat> In the last time he says, do you love me, he changes the verb from agapao to phileo. To phileo, phileo someone is to, to love them with filial love, with kind of the friendship between, love between friends, the love between relatives. It's a, a love, uh, it's, a, it's a more common, less high-principled kind of love. It's more like affection uh, than it is this high, higher and holier agapao. And that's what really grieves Peter. It's like, yes, I know you can question my, my ag- agapao. I, I let you down. But to question my phileo, <laughs> that cut him to the quick. So now, by doing that, Jesus uh, fully restores Peter in the eyes of the disciples because he's drawn out this confession of love and loyalty. And and obviously, Peter is a much more humble disciple, though he has a ways to go. Okay, Uh, Kristen, would you read 20... To, why don't you just read the rest of the chapter? Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. This this uh, last part really sounds to me like John has an amanuensis writing for him, and amanuenses were allowed to edit and 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 doctor manuscripts so that they were grammatically perfect and and in every other way uh, well written. <clears throat> but you can you can just almost hear John uh, dictating to this amanuensis saying, you know, I, I, I don't refer to me by name. Uh, just call me that, that disciple whom Jesus loved. <laughs> I like this last part. It seems trivia, doesn't it? Now, what, why does John include this little conversation with Peter, who has this great curiosity to know what Jesus is going to do with this disciple? Is there a hint of that old jealousy of who's going to be first in the kingdom. And, I, I, you know, it probably is no surprise to the other disciples that John would refer to himself as a disciple Jesus loved. He was always right beside Jesus whenever they were together. Jesus quashes Peter's curiosity and says, basically, it's none of your business what I do with him. And even though it seems trivial, 
doesn't seem like one of those stories you want to end the gospel with. <laughs> I think it's a profound call to all of God's believers to stop meddling. It's to stop judging. Uh, to stop trying to figure out what God is going to do with someone else. It's none of our business. So why do you suppose the gospel ends on this note? Uh, John could have taken them to the Ascension Hill, couldn't he? He could have ended it just like Matthew does. Why does he stop on this note? I would like to think that John is attempting very strongly to write an authentic gospel of Jesus. One that ensures trust from other people who read his gospel, that they too believe in Jesus. Because the refrain, uh, look at chapter 20, for example. This refrain is sprinkled throughout the gospel. Uh, starting with verse 3. And now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. And right away you have some disciples saying, Oh, but you know John. Jesus said this about him, but, but you know, we don't think he's going to live till Jesus comes or something like that. And, and so John wants to quash this problem that could keep believers from believing his gospel. It's important that he be credible, that he have a credible testimony. And so he um, puts this together at the end of his gospel to try to establish that credibility. We have finished, John. That's amazing, considering that uh, we spent all year on the gospel, I think. So next, starting next time, you know, next week I'll be here, um, we will begin with Acts, and we won't be going through Acts like we did John. We're going to be going through parts of Acts, and I refer you, I could refer you back to the document that I did um, that maybe what I'll do since I don't think Kristen and Paul that you've ever had that document and I'm not sure you have did you have it early on it was a document of all the scriptures we were going to go through I don't believe so okay so I'll bring I'll bring copies of that document and we can go through it through Acts with that document in mind and we're on our way through the rest of the New Testament now. It will take us another year, I predict, at least, uh, to get through to Revelation. Okay, let's have closing prayer. Father, we thank you that your Spirit leads us to lead people to the gate but not to be the gate. To cast our net on the wrong side of the boat at the wrong time of day, at your bidding, 
when it just seems impossible to catch anything. And that you remind us not to meddle in other people's business. We pray that we may live out these principles and these truths in our lives as we seek to serve you, as we seek to make you known. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.